Welcome to the Frankly Speaking Podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on the topics of European and world affairs. Coming up this week. Do you think that this sort of uh, front of solidarity with Ukraine is likely to hold up o- over the winter? So the Commission has put forward a long-term plan for this, but of course it does depend a little bit on um, whether uh, key member states like Germany, who've had objections so far to the way in which that's been organized, uh, allow it to go through. This is where the provision of Western air defense systems coming in to protect that critical infrastructure is so important. Good morning, everybody, and and welcome back to our Frankly Speaking podcast, uh, uh, Friends of Europe. Uh, focusing today once again on the uh, conflict in Ukraine. Now, over the last couple of weeks, if you've been watching the podcast, which I sincerely hope is the case, you will have noticed that we've had a range of very good special guests. Uh, But today, I'm also very pleased that we're back to the original cast of three, the three of us senior fellows uh, in the Peace, Security and Defence Programme at Friends of Europe, who started the podcast uh, back in the spring. Uh, Nine months into the Ukrainian conflict, and as we head towards winter, we thought it would be a good time to bring the three of us back together to look at the last nine months, uh, see a little bit what it means uh, as we go forward uh, into the future and assess the international handling thus far uh, of the war in Ukraine. So I'm delighted. My two colleagues, first of all, Paul Taylor, uh, uh, who is, uh, as you all know by now, uh, a distinguished a former diplomatic correspondent with Reuters, columnist for Politico, and also a former State Department official and UCOM senior advisor, Chris Kremidis courtney uh, So, uh, Chris, Paul, thanks a lot for joining me today. Chris, let's kick off with you. Uh, how do you assess the balance of forces now uh, on the ground in Ukraine, Russia versus Ukraine? We, we, we've seen uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, the Ukrainians go on the offensive and recapture a lot of territory. But as we head into war, winter, uh, that that advance seems to be stalling. Maybe they're going to try to recapture Kherson. It's not very clear at the moment before winter uh, sets in. Russia has appointed a new commander-in-chief uh, and has adopted new tactics, less fighting on the ground and more sending missiles and drones to attack uh, Ukraine's infrastructure. So, Chris, as we head into the winter, uh, where is the momentum going uh, the way you see it at the moment? Thank you. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning, Paul. Uh, I think by all accounts, Ukraine is winning the war and their morale is high, but that doesn't tell the, the whole story. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, Russia has, has, has mobilized large numbers of, of, of young and middle-aged, mostly men, to throw into battle. What we've seen is that they have uh, taken a, a certain slice of that mobilized population, given them two weeks of training and thrown them into the battle to stabilize the lines. And that's been modestly effective, uh, you know, just sending them as replacements to units that were very short on people. So um, that, you know, in, in some ways has helped stabilize lines. At the same time, many of them are dying in battle. They have no experience. Their weapons don't work. They don't know how to fire them. They don't know how to move in combat. And so that makes them, uh, you know, easy targets for uh, Ukrainian infantry. Uh, the situation in Kherson is not really clear right now. This is where the fog of war comes in. And, you know, a certain amount of that is operational security on both sides to see what's going on. But the evidence we can see points to a Russian decision to retreat from the West Bank of the Dnipro River to avoid being cut off there in the winter. Uh, but they will, in doing so, they will seek to exact the highest cost they can on Ukrainian forces. 
Um, both sides are um, both sides are running short on ammunition and need more ammunition. You see Russia going to Iran and even North Korea to seek more uh, ammunition. Uh, the West keeps providing ammunition to Ukraine of all sorts, but you know that 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 level of support needs to be maintained uh, for that to happen. But I think what's what we're seeing is Russia is looking to take on a more defensive. Uh, stance in the winter, sort of, you know, by by leaving the west bank of the Dnipro, they moved to the east bank of the Dnipro River, and now they have the river as sort of a natural obstacle that helps them defend some of that terrain. Uh, but if if Ukraine is able to seize the west bank of, of the Dnipro in, in Kherson, they will now be able to not only threaten the water supply for, for the freshwater supply for Crimea, but also a lot of Crimea and uh, other regions will come into the range of some of these long-range Ukrainian systems. I mean, if if that happens, it would obviously be a political humiliation for Mr. Putin, who declared this is you know he declared it part of Russia. So I think there's a lot happening there. But I think what's clear is that uh, both sides need to be resupplied somehow. You know, Russia seeking it from elsewhere, and Ukraine obviously replying uh, relying on the West. Uh, Chris, thanks. You mentioned, of course, uh, the criticality of uh, the Western flow of weapons and support to Ukraine. And there I turn to Paul. Paul, uh, do you think that this sort of uh, front of solidarity with Ukraine is likely to hold up over the winter? I mean, a lot of people, of course, as you know, are looking at the midterms in the United States this week with potentially Republicans regaining control of uh, maybe one or both houses of Congress. Uh, Would they uh, uh, put pressure on the administration to sort of reduce the level of support uh, within the European Union? Is the will still there, particularly with the high gas prices to keep supplying Ukraine. I know at international meetings, everybody signs communiques pledging support, but how fragile is this coalition uh, behind Ukraine in your view? Well, good morning, Jamie. Good morning, Chris. Uh, I think uh, uh, that so far, Western unity and European unity is overall holding up and um, has not really flagged seriously uh, despite the approach of a difficult winter and difficult political waters um, on both sides of the Atlantic. So um, if we look on the plus side, um, the EU is implementing its sanctions, which are clearly putting the squeeze um, on Russia's trade, on its ability to source, um, in particular, uh, uh, technology it needs for its uh, weapons industry. Um, The US has, in particular, provided not only weapons, but massive financial support um, and the European Commission has put forward a, a long-term plan for financial support next year um, for uh, Ukraine. And there's been disappointment about um, how difficult, how slow uh, the EU has be- been in coming forward with budget support for Ukraine. You know, Ukraine needs um, billions of um, dollars every month from its partners to keep its budget uh, going. Um, and so the Commission has put forward a long-term plan for this. But of course, it does depend a little bit on um, whether uh, key member states like Germany, who've had objections so far to the way in which that's been organized, uh, allow it to go through. My guess is that that they will let it go through. Um, um, Politically, you know, the arrival of a a far right populist government uh, in Italy has not so far affected support for Ukraine, uh, despite some noises off from Mr. Berlusconi and Mr. Salvini. Um, and that may uh, suggest that, you know, um, they're, they're, they're doing domestic signaling to their own audiences, but they, the show will be allowed to go on. Um, same up in Sweden. Um, 
So I think that, um, you know, um, also Hungary, which has been very difficult on sanctions, um, has a strong motive now to fall in line with the EU because it's making a big uh, bid to get out off the EU's naughty step, as it were, over the rule of law uh, in order to uh, get some very big EU funds which have been withheld from it. So all in all, the picture for European unity is not bad. Um, there are no looming elections that could um, fundamentally change that picture uh, in the next few months. Um, and also, I think that um, uh, to anticipate um, a question I think you wanted to ask me, um, you know, Europe's going into this win winter with its gas tanks full. Um, it's been a, a mild start to the winter. So it seems like um, the Europe's chances of getting through this winter without major, major energy disruption um, are relatively high. But of course, there's a big question about whether that will last next uh, next winter. And maybe it's the winter of um, 23, 24 that will be the real uh, hard times. Finally, on the uh, transatlantic relationship and the United States, I think there are two clouds on the horizon. One, as you say, um, the possibility, perhaps probability, that Republicans uh, will capture uh, certainly the House and possibly the Senate as well, and therefore that uh, President Biden will be facing a hostile Congress. Um, the, the Republicans are split too um, on uh, uh, this. It's not, they're not monolithic. You've got Republicans who strongly support um, the most hawkish uh, attitude uh, uh, towards Russia and the, the fu fundamental support for Ukraine. And you have other Republicans from the sort of make America great wing, uh, if, if you like, of the party um, that want to um, stop, you know, spending tax American taxpayers' money on some foreign country. Um, what, what that's likely to translate into, I would guess, is pressure on the administration to press the Europeans to carry more of the burden. Paul, thanks very much. And Chris, uh, coming back to you, there, there are two things I, I really would like your views on. Um, one um, is the cyber issue, because uh, many of us dealing like you uh, with cyber uh, uh, warfare, if we can call it that, uh, cyber security, cyber defense, uh, have really emphasized just what a big role this now plays in modern conflicts and international relations. And I suppose most of us were anticipating a kind of, you know, cy cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber Geddon, or at least, a, a, you know, some evidence that, that this really would be a big factor uh, in the Ukraine conflict, but we haven't really heard very much. Uh, and uh, that means that either a lot is going on, but we simply don't know about it, or cyber has been maybe overhyped vis-a-vis uh, -vis, you know, traditional warfare with trenches, with artillery, uh, with aircraft, what we've been seeing. So I'd like to ask you to give us a sort of your expert assessment on how important cyber has been here. Thanks, Jamie. I think on the cyber side, it's uh, it may not be visible to the to a lot of people, but there's a a sort of cyber battle of curse happening in cyberspace. Uh, a lot of activity in all directions. And from the Russian side, from the earliest days, we saw attacks on critical infrastructure. So that's not just network attacks, but attacks on the industrial control systems that control uh, the pressure valves in, in uh, gas pipelines, that control the uh, physical processes that run electricity, uh, electric plants and water plants and all these sort of things. So this is a, an escalation in the cyber war beyond just sort of denial of service attacks that'll shut down your ATMs. This is 
These are things that can do lasting damage to critical infrastructure. And But what we've seen is that the Ukrainians were very well prepared. They're very responsive. They've been exercising this and working on their skills since 2014, and it shows. And I think one of the things we're seeing that's, uh, I, I think this is a big reason why the Russians are now using up some of their uh, very precious few precision munitions to go after these uh, this critical infrastructure because they're failing to take it out with cyber means. So cyber means are a cheaper way to take out critical infrastructure. Now they are having to pay full price. And so, you know, in, in some ways, a cyber success becomes, you know, they can't get it done with cyber, so they have to resort to the kinetic. And so I think that's a big reason why we're seeing a lot of that. And um, But I think Ukraine's done quite well with that. Uh, and I think that's the, but one thing that's interesting in, in studying some of this with a number of experts and even recently at the hybrid COE is that uh, the Ukrainians are actually ahead of most of Europe and a good part of the United States on this kind of preparation. Say, save perhaps not only the Estonians, uh, but I think, you know, they are really on the leading edge of this sort of cyber responsiveness uh, and, and sort of 360 ability to defend their critical infrastructure. But I think at the same time, on the energy side, because it, it does have an energy impact here, I, I have a, you know, you've got to have a great deal of admiration and respect for the Ukrainian people, their civil society, and their ability to, their resolve, their resilience, because uh, they're now, you know, 40% of their uh, electrical and power producing infrastructure has been destroyed by Russian missiles in recent weeks. And they're having rolling blackouts now in Kyiv and other regions. And so, um, you know, they're they're responding the best they can. And so they're, they're coming up with a number of plans to deal with this. Uh, among them is the Kiev is establishing 1000 heating centers to hold three, you know, to hold, a, you know, some part of its three million uh, inhabitants to keep them warm in the winter. They're even talking about possibly evacuating the entire city if they lose power to the entire capital. And one thing we've heard Mr. Z uh, President Zelensky saying in some of his addresses and some of his officials are that if you're a resident of Kyiv and you have a, a uh, someplace you can go in the west of Ukraine where you can stay and have electrical power and water, please consider going there. Yeah, so yeah. you can see how seriously they're taking it. But I think um, we're also seeing that, you know, 17 uh, EU countries through the EU civil protection mechanism have donated 500 power generators. So we're seeing sort of you know, the, the EU civil protection mechanism doesn't get enough credit for what it does. It's it's usually pretty just, you know, it's not doesn't get the headlines, but it has real impact. And I think 500 generators to me is a nice start. But again, I think we're going to need a lot more support going in that direction. And in particular, this is where the provision of Western air defense systems coming in to protect that critical infrastructure is so important. We didn't uh, see enough of that coming in in the early days because there weren't enough of these missile attacks on those places, because again, the Russians were trying to take them out with cyber. Now that they're switched to kinetic, this is where I think a, a Spanish delivery and a US delivery just arrived today uh, to get those out and operational. But I think that providing air defense systems to protect critical infrastructure will be critical in the coming months.
Yeah, thank Chris. And I also saw that uh, yesterday, for example, the US announced that some of its uh, NASAMs uh, air defense systems have arrived. The Germans have been sending uh, missiles to the French, the British. So hopefully, yes, uh, that's going to uh, uh, be in place soon. Thank you. Uh, Paul, back to you. Uh, Paul, I always like to ask you about broader international diplomacy. And uh, I suppose one of the key things of the, the Western strategy vis-a-vis -vis Russia is to keep it isolated. But you mentioned Russia turning to North Korea, Russia turning to Iran, or Chris did. Both of you uh, trying to break out of its isolation. There's a lot of speculation about how close China is to Russia. Is it really helping? Uh, is Beijing really helping Moscow or just giving it rhetorical support? So uh, how do you see sort of Putin's efforts to break out of the isolation? And how about you know the US and the EU trying to counter that? For example, is it possible to uh, put pressure on Iran to stop supplying drones? Will EU sanctions on Iran have any impact uh, there? What's your take on the, the broader diplomatic front? Well, Jamie, I think that um, the fact that Ro Russia has had to resort to suppliers like uh, Iran and uh, North Korea uh, tells us you know, a little bit how desperate they are. Uh, and also, uh, it tells us where they don't seem to be getting help, which is China uh, on the arms front, at any rate. Um, if you had the choice between buying weapons from China and buying them from Iran and uh, North Korea, you'd probably go for China. Um, there are ways, I think, of mitigating the impact uh, of Iran and uh, uh, North Korea's uh, help. I mean, one thing is that not all of the weaponry that they're providing is particularly sophisticated. Um, and there may be ways of jamming the drones um, um, that, that um, could, and you know, NATO itself has a system which it's just very recently um, um, provide, agreed to provide to uh, Ukraine that, that, that you know, uses electronic jamming essentially um, to uh, uh, knock drones off their course. Uh, and so uh, I think that you know, uh, there are other ways of, of countering uh, Iranian and North Korean uh, arms supplies other than sanctions. But on trade, I think that, you know, the, the facts are that, that, that civilian trade with China have got, has gone up um, there were some statistics published yesterday by uh, the Kiel Institute for Economics um, uh, in Germany, um, which uh, are precious because Russia has stopped publishing foreign trade data since the start of the war. Um, but this, which is based on you know, pretty, pretty uh, rigorous, uh, if anecdotal, uh, uh, evidence, suggests that, that Russia's uh, imports from China were up by 23% in the three months from June to August this year, compared to the previous year, but now, and that China is now Russia's biggest trade partner. But, but why is that happening? Well, it's happening because Russia is getting so, so few imports from the West. Um, and so, in fact, overall, Russia's uh, foreign you know, imports have gone down uh, very sharply. Um, and so, sort of, China stands out. However, um, you know, the, the, there are no signs uh, that I'm aware of, of Chinese arms getting through uh, to Russia. And I think, you know, while we don't know for sure about high-tech components like microchips, uh, I think the absence of public US and, and European complaints about that probably tells us that they're not getting through either. 
Yeah, that's a um, good insight. Paul, I have to stop you there for the simple yeah. reason that we have eight minutes left and I've yeah. got three questions which I absolutely want to ask of both of you before we close. Um, Chris, the first one is to you, uh, which is the performance of the Russian army. I, I mean, I hear some people say, well, you know, we've uh, the Russians have underperformed uh, in Ukraine, therefore we've sort of exaggerated, we've overhyped uh, the Russian threat to, 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 to NATO. Uh, maybe we don't need to do all of the things that we're doing doing in the alliance to boost up, uh, beef up and boost uh, conventional defense on, on our eastern flank if, if you know, the Russians uh, uh, are not really you know, going to be the sort of the nine feet tall uh, super troops that we thought. So would that be a little bit of a sort of a, a complacent and over hasty conclusion in your view? Uh, how do you assess the, the, the Russian army? And, and, and even if it has underperformed in Ukraine, is it the sort of structure that's capable of learning the lessons and, and bouncing back quickly? Thanks, Jamie. I, I think it's a mixed bag. I, you know, when you go into any of these situations, you look at the weapons, you look at the modernization, the large exercises the Russian Federation was con was conducting, and you would see that there was they were improved from what they were before. Uh, but what we didn't look at so much was their leadership, maintenance, and training—the things that really, the, really the glue that holds a force together. And I think one big thing this is exposed to, to a number of us is that corrupt defense ministries and corrupt institutions result in weak militaries. You know, when you have people stealing fuel and faking training records and not really doing the maintenance, you end up with a force that's not prepared and that's poorly led. And I think that's with the Russian ground forces, that's what we're seeing in Ukraine and why you see really poor execution and not a lot of, uh, you know, the, the leadership at the tactical and operational level is pretty abysmal. Uh, can they learn? That remains to be seen because it's the same institution. You know, it's the same institutional mentality that produced the, the, the forces we have now. But you know, at the same time, we haven't really seen the Russian Air Force or Russian Navy in action much. So, I mean, that's a, there are still other capabilities. They still have tactical nuclear weapons. So and they still have uh, these advanced area denial systems. And I think that's important. But I think at the same time, we have to look at our own side. Uh, if we just consider something like ammunition, we all thought... Um, you know, we had enough ammunition to sort of fight in the early days of a, of a conflict if we had it. The NATO recommendation was for a 30-day supply. Germany only had a two-day supply. So this is another reason the Russians and, and the West have the same problem. None of us plan to have enough ammunition for a big, long, slogging fight like this. Uh, and I think over the coming months, that is going to make a big difference is, you know, you don't want to run out of ammunition. So okay. I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Chris. Uh, and, and Paul, uh, with equal uh, succinctness, uh, please, uh, before our final question, uh, which is uh, the energy union. You, you started to talk about this. And of course, one of the objectives of the EU is to use the Ukraine conflict to reduce dependencies more generally on uh, unreliable or blackmailing foreign suppliers like, for example, Russia uh, with uh, gas or, or, or oil. Uh, uh, or petrol um, oil. How far do you think uh, the EU is progressing along this road? And uh, are you sort of fairly confident that the EU will reduce dependencies and diversify sufficiently that if there's another conflict in the future, it will be far less susceptible to the type of uh, Russian pressure that we've seen over the last couple of weeks? I think the EU is having success in, in diversifying away from Russia. Um, uh, by getting uh, other suppliers of gas, both uh, from North Africa and Norway, and, uh, and LNG, liquefied uh, nat natural gas from the Gulf, and uh, above all from the United States. 
I think there are some people starting to get a bit worried about dependency on the United States, actually, for that, and the high prices that the US charges, um, and the high prices that the uh, multinationals take off that price as well. But um, uh, the, 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 there's no doubt that this has accelerated the EU's energy transition plans. It uh, doesn't mean the EU agrees about what the energy mix should be in future. There are big arguments going on about the place of nuclear energy, still about the place of gas, you know. Um, do we just buy other people's gas? Meanwhile, the EU is having to resort, some countries are having to resort uh, to more coal, which runs against their climate plans. Is this just a temporary glitch? Or is it the sign, uh, you know, temporary tends to become permanent in energy, which has very long lead times. So um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, the EU um, is very good at setting ambitious long-term targets that, that are supposed to then give the real guidance to industry as what should they should be producing and not producing. So, for example, uh, uh, last month they set this extraordinary target uh, of the end of the internal combustion engine for, for cars uh, by 2035, which uh, would, will be a real revolution if it happens. Um, uh, now, you know, it's easy to be cynical about that because it's after the uh, time in office of all current political leaders, except perhaps Mr. Putin. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the fact is that, uh, you know, these sorts of targets do set industry along certain rails. Um, and then, you know, the EU has proved in the past that it, it, it's able to achieve or come close to such targets. So I think the EU is doing all right, but, uh, uh, you know, there's still an awful lot to be done. And, and, you know, energy efficiency is the area where the lowest hanging fruit can be plucked. You know, if we can get our energy consumption down by 10, 15, 20 percent, that would be a, a huge gain. And uh, I, I'm, I'm still to be convinced, for example, about whether we, 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 we've got enough effort going into insulating buildings and really stopping the waste of energy. Um, I don't see that we're using the same methods we used successfully in the 1970s. Okay, Paul, thanks. Uh, uh, always interesting. And I'd love for both of you to continue to uh, uh, extend those answers, but we're almost out of time. And uh, therefore, you've got 30 seconds each. And I really mean, uh, dear colleagues, 30 seconds each for the final question, uh, which is that uh, all wars or nearly all of them uh, end with some kind of compromise peace, some kind of negotiation, some kind of give and take. Unconditional surrender, World War II style, is rare. Uh, so uh, are we getting now uh, towards uh, some kind of new negotiation? Will the pressure build up on Ukraine, uh, obviously on Russia, uh, to enter some kind of negotiation? Or, or do you still think that given the state of play on the ground, we're uh, far away uh, from the uh, end game? Uh, so, Chris, uh, with you, 30 seconds, Paul, 30 seconds, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Thank you. Uh, I think when it comes to certain negotiations, uh, notwithstanding the U.S. elections, I believe the Americans and the Ukrainians won't accept a, a negotiation for anything, anything less than at least the 24 February lines. And I think Kiev actually, you know, Kiev publicly states that they want to retake all of the territory. So I think that's one aspect within the the West, and I think there's a, a number of of uh, a number of countries in Europe that would be happy with a ceasefire now and negotiated peace now. I know a number 
of, of uh, Central European and Baltic countries would be more aligned in the direction where Ukraine and the U.S. are. But I think it's too early to tell. I don't think we're going to see any meaningful negotiations until Ukraine takes a bit more of its territory back. And that will not be in, until the 2023 timeframe when we start to look more like the 24 Feb lines. Like Chris, uh, uh, Paul, do you share that view of Chris? Yeah, I do. I, I, I don't see uh, early negotiations. I don't see very strong pressure in Western Europe either uh, for very early negotiations. You know, the, the usual suspects, the French and the Germans, are not applying that pressure either publicly or privately, as far as I'm aware. Um, uh, where, where I think, you know, that there's a risk of disunity in Europe is, is if the East Europeans um, and the Central Europeans press too hard for things that are uh, very politically very difficult for West Europe, Western Europe to do. But that's not so much on peace talks. It's about things like how hard do you press Germany so, to supply tanks to Ukraine? And there, I think there's a risk that, that, that some public pressure can become counterproductive. Thanks. Uh, well, Chris and Paul, always a pleasure to have my two colleagues uh, back on the uh, podcast. Lots of great insights, lots of good information. In my view, a, a very good comprehensive assessment of where we are and where we're going nine months into the Ukraine conflict. We'll certainly have our special guests in the near future, but I hope that we can have the uh, the, the three of us back together again uh, with another assessment uh, before too long. Uh, but anyway, uh, dear uh, viewers, dear listeners uh, uh, of the Friends of Europe, frankly speaking, podcast that's it for this week uh look forward to having you uh viewing us and uh, hearing us uh next week uh from london bye for now that's it for this frankly speaking podcast consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on twitter instagram linkedin or facebook and don't forget to tune in again this time next week <laughs>